Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to today's event, which was supposed to be at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, but is online for your viewing pleasure. I'm Marisa Lagos. I am a correspondent for KQED's California Politics and Government Desk, and I co-host our Political Breakdown podcast. And I am thrilled to be here moderating today's program with author and television journalist Katie Tour. She's here to uh, discuss her latest book, Rough Draft. Katie's an anchor for MSNBC Live and has reported for other NBC programs, including Early Today, Tonight, NBC Nightly News, Meet the Press, WNBC TV, MSNBC, and the one you've all been waiting for, the Weather Channel. Um, (laughs) In Rough Draft, Katie opens up about the oftentimes ignored challenges, dangers, and hardship faced by the broadcast media from always being under the public eye to dealing with a news climate that is increasingly hectic, political, and hostile. She also talks about her relationship with her parents, both journalists themselves, and how that shaped her journey to fame. And um, if you have questions for Katie, I will be taking them later in the script so you can put them in the text chat on YouTube and we'll get to those later. In the meantime, welcome Katie Tour to the Virtual Commonwealth Club. I'm so sorry, everybody. I had a 7 a.m. flight out to San Francisco and I woke up at 5 a.m. only to find that the flight crew for my plane had not shown up. And that every single flight to San Francisco, literally everyone was sold out. So I'm very sorry. I would have loved to have been there in person. Um, I never get to come to San Francisco. So it was going to be a real treat. But this is the next best thing. And being with Marisa virtually is awesome, considering that, Marisa, you get me up to speed on California politics. Oh, good. Um, (laughs) The other day, frankly, when we were talking about the primaries and I was listening to NPR Morning Edition. That was fun. That was two in the morning from the floor behind me. Uh, <laughs> you were very coherent. Very, very glamorous fun. life of ours that we have. I think that's one of the um, actually really fun things about this book is like going behind the scenes. And I do think people think that this stuff is way more glam than it is. It's a lot Not of waiting around often, right? Yes. Um, in, fact, we're in the basement where I broadcast most of my show during the pandemic, except this is a clean version of it before um the cameras while the cameras were still in uh we had cockroaches running around and peeling plaster and these beams weren't here so so you can see any about that right super glamorous (laughs) well this is um a really compelling book I gotta say I was a little bit like really Katie Turr wrote another memoir like I mean she's she's like my age and what could she possibly have to say and then I get into it and I'm like oh my god and I I, I gotta say I kind of felt like uh like a kinship with you I grew up in San Diego I went to UC Santa Barbara um so a lot of the details in this book my like grandparents were in Venice Beach during the riots and I remember getting the pictures of them with like the National Guard at the time so gosh um, but if folks haven't read the book yet, let's tell them what the hell we're talking about. <laughs> so yes, I want to start at the beginning with your parents, because a lot of this book is about them and, and um, your relationship with them and their own relationship with one another and, and with journalism. So talk to us just about who they are. How did they meet? How did uh, the tours become a tour de force to begin well, with? <laughs> that's it. I like your pun there. That's very good. Um, I'm going to give you guys a heads up. I just got a low battery notice on this stupid computer of mine. If it goes dead, I will come back on immediately on Zoom on my iPad. So please don't go anywhere. 
Um, okay, how did my parents come to meet each other? My mom worked at the Bruin Theater in Westwood. Um, and my dad was a skinny 17, 18 year old kid who thought my mom was beautiful. And he'd come up to the ticket counter every night for I think a month and he would say, please, please can I take your picture? And she looked at him and she thought, I'm a graduate student in philosophy at UCLA. What is this? I think she was 23. What is this little skinny kid doing trying to ask me out? He's way too young for me. Um, but eventually she wore him down and, or he wore her, my mom down and uh, she agreed to go on a date with him. And their first date was um, covering some, I think, vandalism at a high school. And he tried to sell the photos to the LA Times and then their second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth date was covering um, the Skid Row Stabber <laughs> in Skid Row. That thing's is romance. What's more romantic than trying to find a serial killer in the middle of the night? Uh, but that's how their, their love affair started. And from there, over many years, they built a, a company called Los Angeles News Service. And it started as a stringer business. And they got a plane and they realized that pl planes weren't great to cover news with because they couldn't be stationary. They had to glide around. Um, and then my dad managed to convince a helicopter company to give him a helicopter, even though he was 25 and he had no money and his cameraman was a girl. Um, and they did. And he created capturing news from the sky in Los Angeles and basically popularized the television pursuit, yeah. the live coverage of a police pursuit and they covered, if not the first one live, then the second one. And then everyone after that in the eighties and nineties. And from there they got the OJ Chim Simpson chase, uh, the slow speed chase in the Bronco. They found OJ first, uh, the Reginald Denny beating during the riots, uh, the earthquake, Malibu fires, Madonna flipping off the camera during her cliff top wedding to Sean Penn, which didn't last very long. I was about to say, I forgot that they were married, honestly, until the <laughs> It was a long time ago and it, it didn't last. Let's put it that way. So um, when they did you, a lot of amazing yeah. things. And, and you kind of grew up in part in the back seat of that helicopter. Like, do you have an earliest memory of, you know, your first news event or like, how, how did it oh, feel too as a kid like did you kind of like did you know what your parents were doing so my earliest earliest memory and this might not be it's hard to when you you get to my we get to anyone's age we grow out of childhood it's hard to 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 differentiate we can't tell the difference so you can just call okay. it the earliest <laughs> my earliest memories is watching a tape that they compiled um from their stringer video i think it was before they had the helicopter or maybe it was the first helicopter and it was like just some gruesome video of car crashes on freeways and I remember thinking like, I shouldn't be seeing this. I'm like way too young to be seeing a pile of burnt skin on the ground. Um, and, but I think my, my earliest memories of being in the helicopter uh, beyond covering the fires and, and you could feel that we'd get so close that you could feel the flames on your shins and Malibu fires um, was covering the Rose Parade in Los Angeles in the eighties. And the Rose Parade was a magical experience because for a little kid, it was like a bedtime story come to life. And we'd cover it and I would look at the giant flowered rocking horses or the bear on its head or the elephants. And I was fascinated by it. There's one story, in fact, that I didn't put it in the book because, well, I just couldn't quite find a way to fit it in. Um, 
but I were covering the Rose Parade and I'm with my dad and a friend of his and his son, who's also my age. I think I'm four, maybe I'm five. And I am so comfortable in the helicopter at that point. It was like, I, I, I spent more time in the helicopter than I did in my own bed that I got unbuckled my seatbelt. I got up, I went to the door, I opened the helicopter door and I just looked down at the parade below me. And my dad says that, that in that moment, he almost had a heart attack, <laughs> told me to sit down gently and then immediately landed the helicopter. But it shows you just how comfortable I was in that space because it felt to me like home. Which is wild because wild. helicopters terrify me. Uh, I went, so dangerous. I went for the first time the other day, for the first time in 24 years since my parents lost their helicopter. And I get nervous on planes. I get nervous. I get afraid of heights. And I had no nerves in this helicopter. I felt like it, my dad used to say, flying a helicopter made you feel like an angel because you're floating above um, the ground. You're getting an angel-like view of a city. And that's exactly what it felt like. Um, Your dad, and we'll talk about him more, but obviously has a lot of crazy stories from that era, um, including I I read in at the end, I really liked what you said about how your mom was left off of some of the accolades um, because she was a female camerawoman, and I'm mean, including that horrific but incredible footage of the LA riots. But they also kind of like cornered OJ Simpson before, I assume it was before the chase, right? When he, or I, I don't know, before, or after, but at Santa Monica Airport. And yeah. Uh, like to me that story in some ways really summed up the kind of journalism be- beyond the helicopter <laughs> your dad helped pioneer can you just talk about like what that so this is after oj gets acquitted of um murder and he is he goes into essentially the belly of the beast he goes into a restaurant called dc3 which is um a restaurant on the tarmac at the santa monica airport and that's where my parents had their hangar it's where they um it was their base for covering the news and my parents happened to be having lunch there that day. I mean, this was a very popular, cool place at yeah. the time. Gwyneth Paltrow had been a hostess at one point. Um, it was kind of a hot spot in LA. And um, the waitress that was inside at the time didn't want to serve OJ lunch. She was very upset about it. And ultimately they kicked him out. And my dad went down to, to the car, got the camera out and was waiting as OJ walks out of the restaurant. And says something just I think that would violate most journalistic standards today or all journalistic standards and might get you fired um which is how did it feel putting the knife into your ex-wife this is after he had been acquitted I mean it kind of tells you what the the mood was in Los Angeles at the time toward the conviction which was that it was bullshit um at least in some circles um and OJ just laughs it off. And a couple years after that, and my parents at this point were, were very near to the pinnacle of their career. I mean, they had covered OJ, they'd cover the riots, they'd, cover, they'd covered um, the, the earthquakes. They had just bought another, heli- they were about to buy another helicopter, more high tech and, and decommission the old one. So they're at the height of their careers. They're making a ton of money. We got we have Porsches, we're going on Hawaiian vacations. I mean, my brother and I in private school, life is good. And, but it, that example of my dad saying that was an example of, of the risks that he would take and the unnecessary 
the unnecessary risks. The right, because what are you going to get out of OJ? Like, what he's, he's going to be get like? Yeah, exactly. Oh, actually, I admit that I killed her. <laughs> like, I mean, I mean that would, of, it would be a great scoop, but it's yeah. it's just <laughs> it's very the guy, TMZ the guy was acquitted. He was in the middle of a civil trial, but he was acquitted. Yeah, it's very like TMZ of these days today, right? That sort very of like much. confrontational. Very. Um, well, when you think about that, I mean, because you also detail in this book your dad's anger and abuse towards your mom and and you and your brother and the family dog um but I just wonder like how you kind of think about his impact on journalism given you know because I think a lot of your love for it came from both of your parents but I can imagine like to your point that you've also had to kind of shunt off some of that legacy it's complicated so I mean they they would get into confrontations with the cops about what they could cover and what they can't cover, where they could go and where they could not go. In fact, my dad uh, went a Peabody. I think my parents went a Peabody for coverage of an earthquake up near San Francisco in the 80s. And the cops weren't letting anybody through, even though they had, I mean, my dad had the penal code. He knew the law and journalists had a right to go cover it. And ultimately my dad pushed through and just and, and just defied the cops and went and and shot the images of this of this town and the destruction and ultimately again won a Peabody which is one of the most prestigious awards you can get in our business and that's an example of of having the guts to defy the cops for a ultimately noble end a worthwhile end and I inherited a lot of that and I think that there's a lot of footage that they shot a lot of journalism that they did that was groundbreaking and important and you know country changing necessary stuff for the country to see but on the flip side a lot of it was also kind of destructive for the news business Mm -hmm. in the long run the live coverage of police police pursuits live breaking in the moment no context really around them about why this person is running other than what the cops told us they had a stolen license plate or whatever Um, and so this live coverage that was so compelling that drove giant ratings fed into this idea that news had to be something more akin to entertainment. And I think you can draw a pretty straight line from that to the way that we covered Donald Trump's campaign in 2016. Yeah. And hearing you talk about police chases too, I think it's this interesting dichotomy where like your dad was often facing off with police, but he was also kind of serving as their mouthpiece in some of these situations, right? When you give this sort of unfettered, you know, I mean, I think about this right with like the police pursuits. I think you could say that, but then he would really push back on the cops. I mean, during the, during the riots, he said, um, when he was covering Reginald Denny getting pulled out of my, both my parents, by the way, were covering, um, getting Reginald Denny getting pulled out of the red gravel truck and, and beaten, um, by accused and convicted gang members. Um, he said very infamously, the cops, the LAPD has abandoned the city and that, did not earn him (laughs) a lot of friends within the law enforcement community because they took a lot of heat for pulling back and allowing the the riots to just expand across the city the looting and the fires i mean it was a really ugly there was ugly few miles around um uh, South Central Los Angeles that were, that was at the time just lawless. So it did, again, it cut both ways. I mean, he had some people in law enforcement and officials in the fire department or even the state that just hated his guts for what he did and and feeling like he was 
being reckless. And my parents will argue, no, we were actually exposing wrongdoing and that's why they didn't like us. But then they also had some real serious allies, like the DA thought they were great, one of the DAs. Um, there was, you know, firefighters who would, there were firefighters who would come to the hangar and, you know, get rides. A firefighter, a fire department helicopter pilot taught my dad how to fly. So it was, it was good and it was bad. Yeah. It reminds me um, when uh, one of the gas companies out here blew up a neighborhood in San Bruno, I remember having one of those face-offs where you're like, no, legally I'm allowed to go behind this line. And, you know, you have to make a decision as a reporter, like, am I more used to it? Well, right. And am I more use in the back of a cruiser? Like, it, it doesn't matter if I'm right, if they're going to still arrest me and I'm going to have to fight this later. So. I mean, it helps to carry a copy of the penal code, <laughs> which is what my dad would do. I mean, he could recite the actual penal code by heart that allowed him to, to cross police and fire lines. So I want to talk about you, not just your dad. Um, but I'm curious, like, what made you decide at this moment to be so brutally honest about, you know, I guess starting with your your childhood and and the abuse and and his anger because you know this is like I said this is the second book you've written you have not been I think in the past as public about it I I touched on it a little bit in the last book and I got a lot of people saying that that was the most interesting believe it or not part of the last book which was centered around the Trump campaign and they wanted to know more I, I always knew that at some point I'd have to get this story down on paper because the it is an incredible story, the story of my parents' career and the way that they shaped the news business. And then I guess me to a degree, I knew it was going to come out of me eventually. Did I think it would be this moment? No. What precipitated it was the pandemic. And in the middle of the pandemic, I was just about to turn 38 and I started to spiral emotionally um, you know, I was in this basement you see behind me, um, broadcasting my show alone every single day. My husband did it down here for a few months, but then went back to the studio. But I stayed down here alone with just the voices in my head. Some of them were actual real voices in the control room. <laughs> yeah, right. My own voices <laughs> in my head. Um, and I would get to thinking, you know, we are a, a country that is in the middle of a life and death pandemic, but can't agree on issues of life and death. And that scared me, can't agree on science. And that scared me. Politics was another more terrible version of that, that fed into why we couldn't agree on science. And I started, you know, I made a mistake in my career. I tweeted about Kim Jong-un having uh, brain damage. I I just, I, I had source information I misread an email thinking it was reportable. It was not reportable yet. And I tweeted it, I was wrong. And it was a bad, really super bad thing to be wrong about. I pulled it back within two minutes, but it was like a moment where I thought, oh my God, I'm gonna get fired over a stupid tweet. Like, what am I doing? Um, and I, I, you know, I just spun out and I, I thought, no one likes me, everyone hates me. My career is BS. I might be making things worse in the world because we can't agree on anything. My parents lost everything at 38. Like maybe it's me. Maybe it's just, maybe, maybe this was the way it's supposed to be. I got paranoid and, and a little bit, um, uh, what's the word? Superstitious. And then in the middle of all that, my mom sends me a hard drive. And on this hard drive contains 
thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of videotape. It is all of the news footage they shot in their careers. So the late 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the early 2000s. And it's my entire childhood as well, because they, they also shot me and my brother as kids and our lives. So it's me as a newborn up to me as a, a early 20 something year old. So my whole life. And a lot of it is stuff that I've been running away from for 15, 16, 17 years. I left Los Angeles and I didn't really go back. Um, and my relationship with my father has not been great. And I realized that if, in order to figure out what I was doing and where I was going, and whether I still wanted to be a journalist, whether the voices in my head were real or just imagined, I needed to figure out where I came from and I needed to confront some of the ugly, ugliness, some of the stuff that I didn't even tell my husband that I had been avoiding for so long. How's that been? Like, I mean, I imagine it was probably scary, but you was know, it therapeutic? You're an interviewer. How's that been? It's, been <laughs> um, it's been, it was hard. It was really yeah. hard. It was really, really difficult because it's hard to hold two ideas in your head at the same time, which is, I love my childhood. I hated my childhood. I love what my parents did for journalism. And I think what they did for journalism was really destructive. Yeah. Um, obviously not intentionally. <laughs> I think we were trying <laughs> to destroy things. And so going back and trying to face it and understand it, you know, at times was, I felt nearly impossible. And I, I hit, I had a number of walls in the writing process where I didn't want to go any deeper. Um, I had luckily a few people around me that were willing to push me into the darker corners and say, you really got to read, like, this is an important part of this. You got to put it on paper. Um, and, you know, now when I, when I look back at the finished product, I, you have to read it a bunch of times when you edit it to yeah. make sure there's no typos and make sure everything's accurate. And so I've read through the book now like 10, 20, 30 times. And I'm struck as I'm reading it at how exciting and fun and happy it is in the first few chapters. And then I think to myself, oh my God, my childhood is wonderful. <laughs> I miss my dad so much. And then I get to the darker chapters and I think, oh my God, no wonder I've been so angry about it. And no wonder we don't have much of a relationship. And then, you know, you get past that and you move on to um, some of the, some of the lightheartedness about meeting my husband yeah. and like going to a fish concert. And then we get back into the deep, right. dark, ugly stuff, <laughs> which is the pandemic and, and the state of our politics and a, a little bit of media uh, criticism. So, it, you know, it's been helpful for me because I feel like I have, um, as Jack Donaghy in the 30 Rock would say to Liz Lemon, gone down into the crevasse. And now I'm coming back up. Uh, I feel better. I feel yeah. better having having done this. Well, and it is. It's a really, it's a like an easy read, and I mean that as a compliment. It's it's very compelling, and I think as somebody you know in broadcast, like I'm I'm really, I was just struck by like how you weave things together, sort of chronologically and and emotionally, because as somebody who hasn't written a book yet I hope it's like sort of seems terrifying I also imagine it's sort of like a big journalism story which is like you probably know it's done when you're just so sick of it you never want to look at it again <laughs> <Exactly>. uh, <laughs> so um 
let's just talk a little bit about how you got to where you are career-wise because um, you went to UC Santa Barbara, as I mentioned, my alma mater as well. Go Gauchos. When did you graduate? Uh, so I'm like two years older than you. So we probably overlapped. I actually met my husband at the Daily Nexus and now we have two children. Really? The school newspaper there, yes. We might have been at, at uh, the James Joyce together at some point. <laughs> yes, for sure. <laughs> well, and it's funny because I was like, oh gosh, how come we never met? But you were really trying to avoid journalism when you were I was not a part of it at all. I didn't work yeah. for the Daily Nexus, yeah. So what, um, talk about that. I mean, you wanted, you were talking about law, you were talking about becoming a doctor. Um, and then I guess much like your parents, you were on a date and found yourself unable to talk your, like unable to talk yourself out of talking yourself past a police line, essentially. Yeah. So I was a junior or senior and I, um, was going to be a doctor. And I, so at first when I went to college, I was going to be a doctor. Then I got an F in calculus, like an actual F, like my first F in my entire life. And I got a C minus in chemistry. And I thought, I can't, <laughs> they've weighted me out. They've yeah. done their jobs. They've I gotten took, rid of the. I took the biology of AIDS at UC Santa Barbara and got like a C in it. Yeah. I was like, okay, well, I'm going to stick with English major. <laughs> not cut out for this, not doing it. And then I, you know, I was like, I'll be a philosophy major. I love philosophy. Philosophy. I love thinking about the big problems of the world. I just liked getting lost in the weeds of that. And my dad at the time was like, what are you doing? Philosophy? Like, I thought you were going to be a doctor. And I said, no, it's fine. I'm going to be a lawyer. Philosophy is very good for the LSAT. And then I was sitting in the counselor's office and they said, you need this score to get into UCLA. And I thought, oh God, I just, I'm so done with studying <laughs> And taking tests and so I had already started I was already starting to think what else could I do with myself when I um I'm driving back from Los Angeles to Santa Barbara along PCH with my boyfriend at the time and we'd been together for all of college and I'm in this old beat-up jeep and there's a police line because Malibu was on fire because Malibu was always on fire yeah. and you can't go any further you got to go around and I remember thinking, you know what? No, I want to go in. I want to see the smoke. I want to feel the smoke. And I was stopped by the officer. I showed him my press ID. And to give you a little bit of backstory in the press ID, I wish I, I wish I had it on me. Um, my dad had given me a CHP press pass for Los Angeles due service a few years earlier when I went to college and said, you should hang on to this. And I said, are you serious? This is not real. <laughs> It was, it was a picture from my 10th grade yearbook pasted over my grandmother's photo. <laughs> my grandmother was part of the business and it covered, my grandmother was named Judy. It covered every letter, but why? So it said, it was my 10th grade yearbook photo and it said, why Tur Los Angeles News Service. And I remember saying, okay, whatever, I'll put it in my wallet. I'm never going to need this. I'm a hostess at a brewery. We don't need, we don't need yeah. a press pass to do that job. And um, in the moment, I thought, oh, I have my press pass. <laughs> I can get in. And I showed the CHP officer my ID. And he said, you know, I, I thought he must know that I'm full of shit. He said, where's your, where's your crew? Where's your gear? And I said, oh, they're, they're up ahead. I'm supposed to go meet them. You know, the boyfriend's the, sitting next to you still. My boyfriend's sitting next to me, quiet. And he gave me this look and he said, okay, go through. And so we're driving through. And my boyfriend looks at me after we got out of earshot of the cop and said, I've never seen you more confident than you just were lying to that officer. And I remember verbatim what he said. It was a, se it was, it was a seminal moment in my life because at that point it clicked. Mm. This is what I wanna do. I wanna be a journalist. I wanna, 
I want to stand in the middle of the fire. So interesting. Cause I feel like him seeing that in you, like I see that in myself where like, if I'm off work, I like, I would never like sneak into a backstage area at a concert or something. But if I'm working, I'm like better to beg for forgiveness than ask for, you know, it's like, Weird, it'll turn something on in you yeah. where you have more confidence than you have normally. And I don't know about you, but like, I used to be, um, when I was an international correspondent, I found that I enjoyed traveling the world more for work than I did for my pleasure because I, I felt like I got an inside track on a place. Yeah. I felt like I was there to understand it rather than there just to go. Right. It's almost like you feel adventure. less out of place somewhere. Totally. You have a mission. Yeah. So you end up moving to New York after uh, working in LA for a little bit um, in some ways to escape your dad really. And you like your first job, you kind of, you, you said no to something, which again, I have experienced with that in my, my career as well, that people are like, what are you doing? Um, and, and I think you just talk about it, that first job that you felt like you kind of had a target on you because you were confident. Um, is that the same thing we're talking about here, which is like, you just had this sense of purpose and like, this is what I'm supposed to do. I had this sense, this, 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 this completely unearned sense of superiority that, that, <laughs> my parents gave me because I grew up in the news business. So I just felt like I knew this better than the rest of you did. And it didn't really earn me friends. I was, I was kind of a jerk. I wasn't a jerk outwardly, but I think the way I carried myself was a bit jerky. And it was probably, it was partially because I thought I knew it all. And then partially because I was deeply insecure. Um, And you did know a lot to be fair. I did, but I also, you know, like I, I don't know. I feel like you're starting out. Like we all have to pay our dues. Yeah. Yeah. And there was a story where I, I worked at a place called News 12 Brooklyn. And the actual tagline of this place is as local as local news gets. It's as small as it comes. And you have to carry your own camera. You've got to shoot your own stand-ups. You've got to do your own reporting, your own writing, your own editing, your own driving to the story. You were alone. It was all on you, which is a great way to learn. And we... Um, it's like a funny story about how I could get, how I had to, what I had to do to get on air, which I will leave you to read, which hopefully will make you laugh. Um, but in order to, or just one night I was there, it was late at night and I got a call from the, uh, the assignment desk five minutes before I was off. It was 11 o'clock. And she said, we need you to go to cover a fire. And it was like a small one alarm fire that, that was not a big deal. And it was, very late at night. It was in an area that wasn't safe. I knew that there weren't going to be a lot of other news stations there. And I said, no, I'm not going, I'm not doing that. And I remember the assignment editor saying like, what do you mean? No, you can't say no. And I said, if you want it so badly, you can cover it yourself. And from that point on, I, I, I got the nickname princess. And then when I went back to the station to have a meeting with the news director, because I worked in a, a satellite station, I found that all the tapes that I had, and they organized story by the reporter who covered them, all of my tapes, which said Tur, had a D added to them. So I became Princess Turd at this station, which was lovely. It was so You're, charming. <laughs> you have toddlers, but I can tell you as the mother of six and nine-year-old boys that your kids will find that incredibly funny in a couple of years if you tell them. Um, I was already sensitive to it because my middle name is Bear and I, I got called Bear Turd growing up. So I thought, oh, ow. <laughs> yeah, but you did really cut your teeth there and then at um, 
WPIX or how, how do they say it? But, so it was News 12 and then it was WPIX and yeah. then it was the Weather Channel and yeah, I can go through it, yeah. Yeah, um, but just briefly, we don't have to spend time on it, but I, I felt like like it really rang true what you talked about covering the city for WPIX and like how important that is in a reporter's career to really have that type of experience of like just like getting to know a place and really owning it and feeling part of it in a way is that that's the beauty of what you do and and what how NPR is set up so you know NPR there's a national and you tell me if I'm wrong about this there's a national hub and then they feed off of the local hubs yeah and that's the same similar way that the networks and television operate but not quite as um as symbiotically as you do. And when you work in local news and television, you really start to understand a place that a national reporter, in a way that a national reporter could never understand the place. You get to learn the local officials, you get to learn uh, the individual neighborhoods, the individual people, what they care about, the corruption that they're worried about, the potholes that they need filled, um, the hot water that gets turned off, like all of the small issues that, that that matter in their everyday lives. So by the way, if you don't watch local news, I think you should watch local news because local news covers the stuff that matters to your city. And you want to know what's going on in your city because if it's not going well, or if there's a corrupt politician, or if there are issues that get unobserved, you lose out on that, especially in the middle of a midterm year where you're voting for big deal (laughs) positions. As, 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 as we all are right now. So I, I learned about New York in a way that um, I felt privileged to, to know. I, I knew the city better than people who lived here their whole lives knew it. Yeah. I went to neighborhoods they would never go to. I spoke to people they would never speak to. And from that, learning how to develop sources, learning how to talk to people, learning about issues that matter in everyday lives, I was able to take all of that education and make it more meaningful when I worked at the network. I I will give you an example. Just the other day here in New York, there was a subway shooting um, down down from pretty close to where I live actually uh, in Brooklyn. And I was called, sent to go cover it on the ground and, and to anchor reporter it for the entire day. And I was able to call on all of the reporting and knowledge that I had earned over the years of of being a local reporter here in the city to inform the reporting that I was doing for a national audience about what was happening. For instance, the fact that the security cameras didn't work in the subway. You might think that that's so surprising. Why would a security camera not work in, in the subway in New York City? Well, we have a problem with security cameras all over the city. And it's been an issue now for going on 15 years, more than that, at least since I was covering it here in local. And that I find is one of the most beneficial reasons to start your career somewhere small mm-hmm. and to learn about it so that you can be a better reporter when you get to a bigger stage. Yeah, totally. I know I often think I, I like view San Francisco, especially through the eyes of a reporter, I'm like, oh, that's where somebody got killed by a bus. And some of it's happy, some of it's not, but you really do. It's weird. It's weird going around as a reporter. You remember Aries, you're like, I I covered something terrible there, and I covered something terrible there. Oh, you know, that person's really great chicken. It's like you have to like stop yourself, especially with the kids, because I'm like, they don't need to hear this. Um, No, no. I assume. It's a weird twist of life. 
Yeah, you probably take a slightly different tact than your parents in terms of what they're exposed to. <laughs> um, all right, so the Weather Channel um, was kind of a big break for you, and it it ends up leading to meeting Brian Williams and ending up at WNBC um, and doing some stories for Nightly News. And I guess this is a good transition into your dad's transition and... Oh my God, my children are, I'm sorry, ringing the doorbell. I'm just going to ignore them. Um, but like you talk about like there's your strategy as you're trying to get these big, you know, national stories. Um, and it was really just like showing up at the news meeting. Yeah. Uh, so tell us about that. And then like how that then leads to you being in Boston. And it, were you a stringer at the time? Were you even on staff? I was. So I was on okay. staff at, at the network and sorry about this squeaking. Um, and I think this is an interesting way to pull back the curtain on the way net network news works and the way we, we produce a show every night. So there's a 2.30 editorial meeting every night for nightly news. I, I assume it's similar for evening news and for ABC World News. And um, the whole staff would gather around a conference table. Brian Williams, who was the anchor at the time, would be there. The executive producer, all the senior producers, the writers, the graphics producers, the PAs, and a lot of the times, a lot of the correspondents. And when you start off at the network, and I was new at the time, you don't immediately get a space in the broadcast. You really have to fight to be, um, to be on television, to cover a story. And when I wasn't on the broadcast, I would go to both the morning meeting and the afternoon meeting and just try to pick up a scrap. And in, in this instance, I was there just ready to jump on whatever they needed to fill a hole in the show or whatever might have developed during the day. And while we were there discussing, you know, what's the lead story, what's the second story, what's gonna kick the show, the social media producer is sitting in front of a laptop and he gasps. And we look at him and he said, there were explosions at the Boston Marathon. And he sees his first, I mean, this is like, you know, when Twitter started to become a really big deal, he sees it first on social media. It's not on a wire. It's not on a pager, which is the way we used to get things. Not a call from a local. It is on Twitter. And all we see there are a couple of images of fire clouds, big yellow and black smoke. And because it's just those still images and nothing more, I mean, it's, it's immediately after it happened. You don't know exactly what it was. And you don't want to jump immediately to terrorism because you want to rule out everything else first because terrorism is so, forgive the pun, explosive. Um, and so I thought, is it a gas, a steam pipe explosion? I've covered those, doesn't quite look like that. Is it, is it a gas explosion? Doesn't quite look like that. And then another report came in about shrapnel wounds and we're like, oh God, no, this is, this is gonna be big. And it was clear within seconds that this was going to, whatever it was, lead the show and blow out the show. And I said, before anyone even asked me to do anything, I said, I'm going to go cover this. I'm going, I'm getting on a plane right now. I'm leaving. And I don't even think I got a yes. I just walked out the door. I went to Sixth Avenue because we're at 30 Rock, hailed a cab and went to LaGuardia. And I, it was 2.30. I thought if I got lucky with traffic, I'd make a four o'clock fight. And I did. Then I made it by, you know, some miracle to Boston to be on air um, at the top of our broadcast at 630. And it felt to me uh, like a bit of a professional coup. Like I had lived up to my parents' billing as, as 
somebody who's able to drop everything and just run. Yeah. And you, I mean, what a story too. And in the middle of all this, your father calls you up with a little bit of news. So this is why the book was so hard to write because, you know, I'm going to preface this next story with um, just a a little bit of information about the relationship with my dad and I before then, and we didn't touch too much on it. My, my dad was dynamic and magnetic and fun and exciting reporters that would come cover my parents likened my dad to Tom Cruise in Top Gun. He was, you know, he, he wore leather bomber jackets and aviator glasses and he knew everything about flight he would give these impromptu tours and lessons about helicopters and what they can do um and when you watched one of his live reports it was very hard to tune away he just was captivating and i thought he was the coolest most exciting person in the world on the flip side he was also one of the scariest people in the world and his anger could be explosive and violent. And I dealt with that. My whole family dealt with that growing up. I, I tried to make a list one time of all the things that my dad threw at my mom over the years. And it included camera batteries, big giant batteries, um, and keys, radios. And we constantly lived between these two extremes. It was really fun. It was really exciting. It was really scary. And the violence was physical. It was emotional. It was, it was loud. It was yelling and screaming. And sometimes it would get physical with my brother and I sometimes. Um, And that made it really complicated to look at back at my history and to try and figure out how I felt about it because I loved it and I hated it at the same time. And as I got older, as I became a teenager and I got older, I, my relationship with my dad became more and more strained because I, I became old enough to know that it wasn't okay. Right. It wasn't just normal. And so I ran away and moved to New York and I put distance there and, you know, we'd talk on the phone, but it was always heavy or hard or like, it just always felt like at any moment it could turn into something ugly because I was hanging on to all of this, this anger over his anger and he was still pretty angry. Um, so in 2013, when I'm covering the Boston bombings, I hadn't heard my, from my dad in a few days. And one night I'm sitting, this is while this is the while the manhunt is going on. I'm sitting in my um, hotel room eating a cheeseburger. It's the first meal I had that wasn't out of plastic. And I get a call from my dad. And, and I, I remember thinking in the moment, do I have the energy for this right now? And I thought, well, I, yes, I do. It's my dad. I can't just not answer the phone. And he says, Catherine, you know, are you sitting down? Are you alone? Can I talk to you? And I said, um, yeah, I am. And he said, I, um, I'm not a man. I'm a woman and I'm transitioning. And Bob Turr is dead. I'm now going to be, at the time it was Hannah, now it's Zoe. Um, and this is where all the rage came from. And good news, it's gone. It's gone. Bob Tur's dead. This is the new person. And everything is going to be better. And um, so the conversation, you know, it was a long conversation with, you know, highs and lows. But I remember feeling at the moment, um, 
that it was an opening to talk about some of the anger and the violence that I had lived through and that I was holding on to to try and wipe the slate clean so that if my dad wanted if my dad was not the person that she felt she was and was transitioning into the honest version of herself then let's transition together let's wipe away the ugliness by by confronting it and talking about it i'm um, not just pretending it never existed and that led to it led to an even further break and how are you in touch now not really yeah. um and you know she has not left behind the controversy um we don't i don't want to spend all this time that's her story and folks want to google zoe terry you can you can see some of it but i mean even as part of the trans community there's been a lot of outrageous things one thing and again like i don't want to spend a lot of time on donald trump because uh, you wrote a whole book about that and we all spend too much time talking about donald trump but you do have this great line about my father's not donald trump and donald trump is not my father but if anyone asked me i'd recommend the same therapist so you know so part of so part of you know you know part of the way that Donald Trump we covered him I think we inherited from what my parents did in the 90s mm -hmm. but part of the the way that I covered Donald Trump and what I was able to do was because of what I inherited from my parents and I laugh because um I got a lot of questions during the campaign you know why do you keep doing this like you're a foreign correspondent go back to London why are you enduring this I mean you're getting death threats Trump himself is going after you calling you a liar why why keep doing it like what are you doing <laughs> and i i mean i i would never stop covering a um groundbreaking moment a history changing moment because what journalist doesn't sign up to to see that but also because i mean i think i just found it familiar i would be uh, yeah. the, you know i'd be on the campaign trail and my mom would text or someone would text and say gosh he sounds so much like your father and that's not to say that donald trump and my father have the same views and they're the same person they're not no. at all but the way that they behave and their manner um out to the world can be very similar so i knew i just knew instinctively that this is the type of personality that you you gotta stand up to and not and not to say you know like i'm gonna stand up to you but yeah. um just just not allow that person to roll over you well, and it struck, like, the thing that struck me the most was you talking about how you, when you did your first sit down with him, everyone who saw it in the newsroom before it aired was like, oh my gosh, that was really intense. And it took you going back to watch the tape to, like, recognize that, the intensity of it, because it felt sort of normal. Um, like a Perry. I'm yeah. sorry if I'm tapping the pencil and it's making loud noise. I've been told in our private chat that I need to stop. So I'm going to put it down. <laughs> um, you'd think as a TV professional, I'd know what I was doing. Um, <laughs> yeah. So when in this first sit down I did, did with Donald Trump, it, it got very antagonistic and he was very angry with me and he was condescending and he was pissed off that I used the word pissed off. I think he felt like I wasn't, I wasn't just glowing over him. Like he had the press coverage he'd gotten in the past before he was a presidential candidate was glowing coverage from Access Hollywood or from Fox News right. as a celebrity, you know, yeah. not as a candidate man running to be president of the United States. But in the moment, I just felt like it was, you know, I was part of the Donald Trump show because no one was taking him seriously as a candidate at the time. So when he was going after me, I thought, well, this is just part of his act for 
you know, the apprentice, like that sort of attitude. And when I went back and I watched it, I, I fully understood that the anger wasn't acting. It wasn't big for the camera. It was coming from somewhere real. Well, we have some audience questions I do want to get to, but um, before we do, I mean, not to gloss over all the wonderful parts of your life, but, you know, after um, or I guess during that campaign, you know, you, you meet your husband, Tony, you guys are both on the road together. You end up getting married in 2017, I believe, um, you know, have two children. Um, but you really, I mean, I personally really enjoyed just how honest you were about how hard that was to give up your chair, your anchor chair and have that first baby. Um, and, Val, I mean, you, you literally tried to go back on camera, I think, like five days. <laughs> like a psychopath. Like a psychopath. Um, I mean, Marisa, you know what it's like. Yeah. I mean, this job is, I think any job is demanding and you, any job you love you or that you need, you want to hang on to. And it's scary to leave a job to give birth to a child. It's scary to be somebody who is so available to their career. I mean, in, in journalism, you are so available that they call you at 3 a.m., you're out the door. They call you at 3 p.m., you're out the door. They say, go cover this for seven weeks. You're gone for seven weeks. I mean, I had stories that would send me overseas for seven weeks straight, and I would like have to buy clothes there because I wasn't prepared to be there or you know, on a campaign trail unexpectedly for 510 days. And I knew that having a kid was going to limit me. I wouldn't be able to do those things any longer. I would not be able to go with a drop of a hat. I would suddenly have real responsibilities that would keep me more rooted in place. And I, I struggled with losing my identity and losing my edge. So when I had my son, um, Teddy, this was right as the Mueller report was coming out. And I'd, you know, I'd covered Donald Trump from the beginning of his campaign. I'd cover, covered all of the coverage of the Mueller investigation. I mean, this was a, this was a big moment. I wanted to be there for it, but I gave birth. <laughs> <laughs> and I think on day four or five of me of of Teddy's life I'd had a c-section too so I was a bit of a big mess and the c-section got infected so it was an even bigger mess and also like I had a bit of post um partum uh <laughs> uh drama I I the Mueller report comes out and I think oh my god I gotta cover this you know, I gotta, I gotta go back to work. I can, I'm on pain medication, fine, but it's like, it's Tylenol and Motrin. I can, I can, I can stomach it. I can, you know, I'm bleeding, you know, from all sorts of areas, but I can, I can hold all that in for an hour. I can go in and do my show for an hour. I can keep it together. My mom will bring Teddy to the office. I can nurse beforehand. I'll nurse after. It will be fine. And I, I was so intent on going that I, texted my boss the president of, M of msnbc and i said i can come in like i'll be there for an hour i can come right now this is the first day of this is teddy's first pediatrician appointment his first day back from the hospital and my crazy self thought no i'll go to work um <laughs> Maybe that's and, the and, he, and my boss thankfully said you're crazy <laughs> but marisa here's the here's the crazy the, the most crazy thing about that there are women out there who give birth and have to go back to work right. five. yeah and they have no choice. And that is, that is awful. And I know I'm a journalist, but that is just fundamentally awful. Yeah, shameful, and, yeah. and one of the biggest problems we have in this country. I agree. And I mean, 
as somebody who took my five-month-old to the dnc in 2016 he was five months old and like that almost killed me i mean i wouldn't recommend it um, cross-country five the five five month old no thank you oh my god that was <laughs> yeah i actually had a very funny moment with an assemblyman who was dressed in plain clothes and helped me clean up baby spit up and i was like was that a staffer and then later i was like oh my god that was an elected official um all right I well Kamala harris call me one the same morning I, I was um, by that story. I was in the bathroom and I was looking down at like the mess of my former body. And I just, I hadn't been able to look down because I was so afraid of what I'd find because the C-section was emergency. It was not what I expected. And I finally, I looked down and I'm holding my phone in my hand for some reason. <laughs> Why are you doing that? I remember checking Twitter at like two in the morning while breastfeeding. My husband's like, get it out of the bed. <laughs> just holding my phone, just in my bathroom, looking at that, you know, if you're a woman, you know. Um, and it rings and I see a 415 area code. And I said, San Francisco, who the heck do I know in San Francisco? I don't know anyone in San Francisco. And I answered the phone and I hear this like this technicolor voice come over the the speaker, Katie. And I said, I said, yeah. And I'm like dead to the world. It's Kamala. <laughs> and I remember thinking it was a joke. Like, yeah. who, what? Who's making it? Who's doing a bad Kamala Harris impression? And she called to congratulate me for the baby. And I felt like this was a real test of like, this woman is running for president, like make a connection so that she'll give you an interview when you come back to work, make sure that like, there's a relationship there. And I fell flat in my face. I was like, I like, she didn't know what I was doing. I didn't yeah, say oh, and like she... looking at my bloody mess, but I, I, I sounded so flat. I was like, uh-huh. Okay, great. She's like, how's the baby? I'm like, he's fine. He's over there. <laughs> So I just, I was, my head wasn't in the right place. No, all. but that's fine because it shouldn't be. And they should give you a heads up before presidential candidates call your cell phone. In my opinion, I hope you saved that phone number. Um, okay, I do I have. Did, a, but it wasn't hers; it was no. her staffers. Damn, I have her old Damn. one, but I don't think it's. I, from what I hear, it doesn't work if you call from California, no matter which number you have. <laughs> um, so. A couple questions from the audience. What is the best professional piece of advice you've received and who is it from? Oh, I've got, I've got a few things. One of them was, was from Keith Oberman, frankly. Um, and this was to stare. I'll try to do it with this, with this camera to stare at the pinhole of light in the camera beyond the lens down to the little, there's a little inky black dot. <laughs> and you try to stare directly in that because that is where you will become where you have line of sight with your viewer. So it'll be like you are talking to that person directly. And don't say hi, everybody. Say hi, singular, because it's between you and the person, the one person watching, not you and everybody watching. Make it intimate. That was a really good piece of just basic TV advice. Yeah. What three characteristics do you think make an impactful journalist? Someone who's curious. Someone who's probably broken a bit. <laughs> not totally functional and sane um curious broken and uh um a clear thinker that's a really big deal to have a clear thinker because you get confronted with a lot of big complicated topics mm -hmm. or big chaotic scenes 
and you have to be able to cut through them and make sense of it for the reader, the listener, or the viewer. So common to pressure, clear thinker. Um, absolutely. Um, this is, I'll just read this direct quote. You strike me as more optimistic, but given you find yourself in broadcast journalism, dark news days are common. It's hard for any of us to see the good, the light. How do you stay positive? And this person wants to know, I love seeing your smile every day at 11 a.m. PST. Uh, <laughs> so how do you see the good and the solutions? They ask. I, I guess I look at my kids and I, I think maybe you'll make things better. And it's also just really hard to be bummed when you are laughing and playing uh, with a bubble machine. Absolutely. It's hard to be sad when there are bubbles. Um, but I am pretty pre- pessimistic. I am pretty down on society and the world. And that's because we have these big, seemingly intractable problems. And in order to tackle them, we've got to agree on the basics. And we don't agree on the basics. I mean, again, we don't agree on science. We don't agree on um, whether masks work, you know, we don't agree on, it can feel like we don't agree on whether the sky is blue yeah. and, or grass is green. And, and that to me is scary. And I don't know how we get back to a point where people have the same set of accepted facts, given that we have all these areas to go to. I mean, social media, Fox news, whatever dark corner or not so dark corner of the internet that you want to go to and all of these bad actors who are trying to manipulate the way that you think, what you know, for their own personal gain. That's hard, 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 hard. It is. And I, I was struck by something you did in the book where you kind of took a closer look at Walter Cronkite's career. Uh, rest in peace, not to, not to pick on Mr. Cronkite. But you, know, you point out a lot of problematic things that happened during his career that just are not even acknowledged or probably remembered as he is sort of lionized as this bygone era of trustworthy journalism um and it made me kind of and and, you know you it made me just think about how like regardless of whether the media landscape changes or whatever like in some ways that ship has sailed because as you know, with social media, with all the things that sort of the, the spotlight, I mean, I would imagine like you can't go to the store without sometimes people maybe talking well, to you're you. You're very hyper aware now of everything you do everywhere. I yeah. mean, my husband and I were arguing on the street a few years ago about like him leaving his underwear on the ground in the, in the, in the, in the apartment. And I was like, I'm so sick of picking up your socks and your underwear. Can you just put them in the laundry? And like, we got into a stupid argument yeah. on the street. And in the middle of it, someone comes up to me and says, Katie Durr. And I remember thinking, oh my God, we can't argue on the street. Like yeah. we have to. Then it's going to be like on Twitter, like Katie Durr. So like Katie everything you do yeah. can be documented and it can follow you forever. Um, and so what I read about in the book, I mean, I don't know if you've had this experience, but I think anybody in journalism, journalism um, has probably had some version of this where somebody online compares you to Walter Cronkite and says that he would be rolling over in his grave if he saw you today and all the journalism that you did. By the way, I've won a Walter Cronkite award, so I, so maybe he would be, but I, I, <laughs> I, I, find, I value that a lot and I'm very proud of it. But Walter Cronkite was not a bastion of, um, of, of perfection. I mean, he was a flawed journalist himself. And I, I recount just a few examples that were... Um, 
documented in a book by Douglas Brinkley, Brinkley the, the official, the unofficial official uh, history of Walter Cronkite. And, you know, some of the stuff is stuff that like, if you did it today, you'd never live it down. Yeah. You would be fired. It would follow you forever. You wouldn't have a career. I mean, he bugged the RNC. He bugged the Republican National Convention. He bugged a committee room and like literally bugged it and reported on it on the As evening if, news. Yeah. I mean, you, you if Katie Turr bugged the RNC. Can you imagine? I'd never live it down. Right. I would never live it down. And and that's not to say that he wasn't a great journalist and that he didn't do great things. He did. He was a remarkable journalist and he and he drew lines um, in the sand for this country, lines that stopped a war. <laughs> Important stuff. He covered Watergate for an entire an hour-long broadcast. Yeah. Just like just laid out, laid it all out for for millions and millions and millions of Americans at a time where they were only getting drips and drabs of it from the paper. I mean, you could say that he really turned the corner on that investigation as well, but he wasn't perfect. And the standards that journalists are held to today are, are of perfection. Never do anything wrong, because if you do, you it will follow you forever and people will 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 never will never trust you again. So I was trying to point out that when you compare a journalist to Walter Cronkite today, fine, do it. But make sure that you know all of Walter Cronkite's history. Make sure that you know that he was not perfect when you try to hold me up to a standard of perfection. Right. Ironically, too, because it doesn't seem that we hold that same standard up to the folks we are actually electing. Right. No. <laughs> it's, it's kind of insane. It's, it is. It does feel sometimes. Um, which leads me to what might be our final audience question. Katie, would you ever run for office? No. Are you crazy? expand on that because that would be my response too but i tell us i don't want to i don't want that responsibility i i I think if you if if politics were a bit cleaner than they are now it feels like all you do is campaign sorry (laughs) i have a child coming in yeah (laughs) um we're almost done i promise i know right Uh, no I, i it's dirty it's dirty you're campaigning all the time you're asking people for money um I was talking to a Republican uh, lawmaker a few years ago for a, a documentary that I did with Jacob Soboroff called American Swamp. And it was Ken Buck of Colorado. And he said, he admitted a, a dirty little secret, which is that lawmakers, he feels, will talk a big game about wanting to get something done. Oh, I need to fix this bridge. I gotta fix this bridge. Um, but really don't wanna get anything done. Because if they get something done, then the lobbyists or their corporate donors or their dark money might get offended and might not give them the money or might spend the money on their opponent. So it's actually better to look like you're trying to get something done and are and are stopped at every turn. It's actually hmm. better to do nothing in Congress. It behooves you to do nothing in Congress. And that was very depressing. Yeah. Not to mention... You just, you have to think pretty highly of yourself. I know, I mean, obviously we have some ego, 
wanting to go on TV and such, but I think like it's almost, uh, I don't want to offend all the people we cover, but it's a little sociopathic to like, just to think that like, you should be the person to fix everything. You know what I mean? You need them. You need people like that to do something. I mean, mean, it's not working so well, but you still need them. I I also like this, who, it becomes such a target. I don't, I don't want to know. Right. More so. All right, you heard it here for folk here, folks. Katie Tur is not running for office. Sorry. <laughs> um, that is going to do it. We are all out of time. Thank you so much, Katie. Marisa, will you please come on my show and talk California politics? I would love to. I, I promise to I will you. lock my kids up in a room before. You don't uh, have to. We can it's just go to the studio. better if they come in and interrupt. Totally. <laughs> um Well, thank you also to our audience for being here. We are, again, very sorry that we couldn't do this in person, but um, we will maybe do it again in the future. And I hope so. I hope so. I will, I will get there two days before so that there's no issue with flights. Well, until your brother, we'll reschedule all in person, especially, especially you HD. I know you're watching. Yeah. HD. Katie, we know how bummed you are. All right. Katie Tour is author of the new book, Rough Draft. Thank you again. Um, It's available everywhere books are sold. And we would love to thank our audience for watching and participating. If you want to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in both virtual and in-person programming, you can go to uh, commonwealth.org slash events. Thank you and stay safe out there. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.